Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our worship of God by singing his praises together. Righteous ruler. 
Father, to you alone does indeed belong the highest praise. You have created us and all that is, and you rule over us, and you have sent your Son as the greatest sign of your love for us. We ask, Father, that you will help us as we worship today to see you, to focus on you, and to learn of you as we open our lives to you. We pray your blessing on this gathering of your people, and we ask this through Christ. Amen. Sure, word of greeting with others who are here in worship today.
just a couple of things to uh, highlight in the bulletin. Um, again, I'm preparing a membership class, so if you're interested in that, let me know uh, this week, and we'll be setting a date for that in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, also, uh, this is the beginning, first Sunday of Lent, and uh, as we focus on, uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, Luke's account of the last week of Jesus' life. And I would encourage you to uh, read through those passages in chapters 19, 20, 21, 22. Uh, also, uh, we are part of the Community Bible Experience. Churches, at least the Wesleyan Church, is participating in this. And there are guides in the back. It actually began Wednesday, but you can catch up pretty easily reading through the New Testament during uh, the season of Lent, uh, Monday through Saturday. And there are readings for each day. And the, the readings are a little bit different than... The, the uh, scripture we typically have, uh, for instance, it begins in Luke and then moves to Acts and, and uh, moves a little bit more chronologically through the, the New Testament. So uh, I hope that uh, you have a chance to participate in that. It's always good to uh, be reading the scripture. You'll also notice that uh, this afternoon at 2.30 is a, a funeral service for Bonnie Szymanski. And the service will be held at Wesley Chapel, uh, Houghton College campus. There will be a visitation an hour beforehand. And uh, please be in prayer for uh, Jim and Karen, their family, as they grieve her death and as uh, we support them as uh, a body of believers at this uh, difficult time in their lives. Our scripture reading, excuse me, our scripture reading this morning is uh, slightly different than what's printed in your bulletin. We're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 1 through 20. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 20. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. 
Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. This time I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward, the giving of our tithes and offerings. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you. But they're tripping over me Always looking around but never looking up I'm so double-minded A blank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners Open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's riding in the sand, made the righteous turn away, and the stones fall from their
As we spend some time praying together, if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, uh, please come and join me. Father, we thank you that we know you are a friend of sinners. In Christ, you have set us free. You have offered us redemption. And you have come for the whole world. Father, forgive us for the times when we... We feel that we're better than others. For the times when we believe that we're more important to you than other people are. We ask that you would set our hearts right. To realize that we are nothing without you. And that we have everything when we have you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the love poured out upon us and the whole world through him. We pray that the truth and the reality of the cross will will live deep in each of our hearts and our lives. Father, as we come this morning, we know all too well how difficult life can be. And we also believe with all of our hearts that the answers to the struggles of life are in you. We pour out the burdens and the concerns of our hearts because we believe that you are good and merciful Because you hear our prayers. And in your loving grace, you answer in the way that you know is best. Father, there are many burdens that we bring with us today. Some for ourselves, for healing, for comfort, forgiveness, for reconciliation. And some for others who are dealing with the struggles of life. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. 
We thank you for your loving kindness at work in each situation. We do pray, especially today, for Bonnie Szymanski's family and friends, and for us as a church. And we ask your grace to be present in the service this afternoon and beyond. Help us to see your mercy in a powerful way. Thank you again, Father, for your mercy and grace upon us. We pray, Father, not only for us, but for the world. We think of the situation in the Ukraine. We think about the, the bloodshed in South Sudan and other places in this world, of people that you love and for whom you grieve. We pray that you will bring peace in the midst of war and violence and that you will help your people to be a beacon of light in the midst of darkness. Father, we offer this prayer through the grace and mercy, through the power of Jesus Christ. The incarnate one, the crucified one, the risen Lord, and our returning King. And the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? After our uh, scripture reading from Luke, the children may be dismissed to their respective classes. This is from Luke. We're going to start in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. Luke 19, 45 to 48. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show... Make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely.
There is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us when the radiance of heaven came to rescue the lost. You called the sheep without a shepherd to leave their distress for the streams of forgiveness and the shade of your rest. Please sing with us. And with compassion for the hurting, you reached out your hand as the lame ran to meet you and the dead breathed again. You saw behind the eyes of sorrow and shared in our tears with the sigh of the weary and the children drawn stood beneath the cross of Calvary and gazed on your face at the thorns of oppression and the wounds of disgrace. For surely you have borne our suffering and carried our grief as you poured out the scuffer and showed grace to the Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight and reflect 
your grace to us. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. If you are a Christian, how do you think people perceive God based on your life? How do you think people perceive God based on what we do and how we live and decisions we make? As a church, what do we communicate about God to people who don't know God? Now, there are people who would say, well, does that really matter? Is it all that important? I mean, God can get through to people however he wants to. God can say to people whatever he wants to say. It's really not that vital. Is it really that important? That question fascinates me when I read Luke's account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and eventually into the temple. In Luke 19, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, it's time to go to Jerusalem. The end is near. And he gathers them together and they make their way toward the city. Something in this, of the Spirit has communicated to him, now's the time. And so they make their way to Jerusalem and, and Jesus enters Jerusalem in this great fanfare. We call it the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And the people wave palm branches and they shout messianic claims about Jesus. And he is the king of, of, of all that God has done and God's kingdom. And Jesus completes that ride into Jerusalem and the people are uh, excited about him. And he makes his way to the temple to worship. And when he gets to this temple, this, uh, it gets real crazy real quick. Jesus walks into the temple and he and there are there are people there selling things, buying things, or animals. It's, it's sort of like a flea market. And and Jesus, at least according to some of the other gospel writers, takes a whip and he begins cleaning out the place. And and he is he is uh, turning over tables and, and knocking over their money and driving them out of the temple. And, and you, I read this and I think, that doesn't sound at all like the Jesus we typically put into our minds as we read the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is all about love and, and about mercy and about being nice to people. And here he is taking a whip and driving these people out of the temple. Obviously, this is something pretty serious. Now, when I was young, I I thought, and maybe I was taught this, maybe I just perceived this, but in my mind, this was about whether you should transact business in the church or not. You know, you don't buy things in the church, you don't sell things in the church, you don't do any kind of money changing in the church because Jesus drove them out of the temple. And I'm not saying that that's doesn't have some truth to it and that there might not be something valid about that point. But I don't really think that's what this is about. In in that day, this of course is Passover week, so it will be amplified how many people were coming to the temple. Pilgrims from all over, at least Israel and other places as well, come to Jerusalem to offer their Passover sacrifices. 
And throughout this week, this, this important week, people are coming to the temple in droves. And, and the only, everyone had to pay a temple tax. And the only tax, only money you could use was the temple shekel. And since the Jews weren't allowed to mint coins, they, they, had to, they had their own little coins that they had that they could use. That you only use in the temple, nowhere else. But everybody else used all kinds of other money. You have people coming from all over the world, Roman coins everywhere. And, and so they'd come to the temple and those had to be exchanged because you could only pay your temple tax with the temple shekel. And so people would come and it was a service to them. I don't have any shekels in my pocket. You know, you, you go to a foreign country, you got those little booths there, you exchange your money. And you hope they give you a good rate. And that's part of the problem. They were, their exchange rate was exorbitant. They were charging people exorbitant fees to exchange their money. There is some estimate that they were making ten to $15,000 in this week in first century money. I mean, that, that's got to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're making. And they're making it off of people who have the least. These are pilgrims. Probably a lot of them poor people coming to pay their temple tax. And they're being fleeced in the name of God. On top of that, people come and sacrifice their animals. Some, if you had some wealth, you'd sacrifice a lamb. If you didn't, you'd sacrifice a dove. Or, and, and they would come, and, and all the animals had to be, based on Old Testament law, without defect. And so they came, and there, was an, there were inspectors there to make sure that these animals were exactly the way they should be. And people could bring their own animals. You were welcome to do that. But interestingly enough... If you brought your own animal, it usually was rejected. And they told you, you're going to need to buy one of our animals. And they sell their, would sell their own animals, that, that, the temple animals out there for them, at an extremely elevated price. So you could bring your own dove, it might cost you a few dollars, and you would buy theirs, and it would cost you 10, 15, 20 times more. And again, in the name of God, in the name of their religious practice, they were fleecing the people. I mean, it's a scam. And all the money is going into into the high priest's coffers and all of his cronies, and they are getting rich off of these poor people. And Jesus comes into the temple and he says, not in my father's house. And you can see why he is so angry. Because in the name of God, people are being taken advantage of, are being fleeced. And and the image of God that they have is of a God who takes advantage of people. They have an image of God who fleeces people, who's just using people. Because that's what the representatives of God are doing. And it is warping and skewing how people view God. And in addition to that, and so you notice in the passage you read in Jeremiah, he's, you know, this is a pretty strong word that he's giving to the people here. And one of the things he says is that you've created a den of robbers. 
And these are the caves where thieves would go to hide their loot, to get away from the authorities. And it was a place where they gathered and they were safe. And Jesus says, you have made this place a safe place for thieves. And that's not what my house is about. Now, in addition to that, the temple was divided into sections. Of course, in the very center section was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest should go there once a year. And then other sections, you had the, the, uh, the court of the Jewish men, and you had the court of the Jewish women. And the outside of it, you had the court of the Gentiles. And if a Gentile was seeking Yahweh, if a Gentile was seeking God, that was the one place they were allowed to come and to pray. They weren't allowed to go any further in because they were Gentiles and not Jews. So they had this one area outside, the outside edge of the temple where they could pray. Guess where all of this buying and selling and animals took place? Out in the outer court of the Gentiles. You imagine trying to, if you've ever been to a country where they have a bazaar or open air markets... And you have a crush and mass of people and you've got animals and you've got people, you know, shouting and trying to sell things. And in the midst of that, trying to pray, trying to, to worship. And the Jewish leaders are saying, in essence, we don't really care about these Gentiles. They mean nothing to us. If they want to come to God, fine. But we're not changing what we do for them. They're on their own. We don't really care about them. And Jesus says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where people can come and they can find Yahweh and they can meet him and they can experience him. And you're destroying it. And Gentiles are walking away thinking that Yahweh doesn't care a thing about them. And that's not what my house is about. And here's the question for us. In what ways are we creating an atmosphere that looks anything like what we see in this image that Luke portrays about Jesus in the temple? If Jesus were to come into the church, would there be things that he would say, we're going to have to clean that out? That's bad stuff. Not in my house, we're not. I don't want you giving people that impression that this is what I'm about because I'm not. Because the church has the the responsibility. The question that's continually coming at us is, are are we making it easy for people to experience God or are we putting up barriers for people to experience God? And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. We've done it so long. It's become so much a part of us that we don't even realize that these are barriers to people finding God and experiencing God. And the only way we'll change that is if we think about it. And that's what the cross forces us to do. Because when we look at the cross, we find that that Christ is all about giving up himself for us and for the world. 
And being the kind of church that makes it easy for people to experience God means giving up. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, thinking about others before ourselves. So how do we do that? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with our actions about things that go on in the world. One of the great arguments that, that people make about the church and, and the barriers that we put up is that we seem to be completely oblivious sometimes to the needs of the world. We, it's abhorrent to me how often injustice in the world is addressed first not by, by the church, but by other people. Dr. King said years ago during the civil rights movement that there wouldn't have been 250 years of slavery and there wouldn't be segregation if it wasn't for the church. He said too often the church is an echo instead of a voice. Too often the church is, is like taillights behind the decisions that the Supreme Court makes and other secular institutions instead of being headlights right out in the front saying, this is wrong and we are taking a stand for it. When we are apathetic about injustice, people get the sense that God is apathetic about injustice. And all you have to do is read the scriptures, just read the prophets Pick any of them, and you will find so quickly that God hates injustice. God abhors injustice. And when we're apathetic toward it, when we're apathetic toward things that are going on in the world, because they don't really affect us, because they don't change our lives, because they don't make us feel, you know, they don't hurt us, When we're apathetic toward those things, we send the message that God is apathetic toward those things. It's important for us to take a hard look at the the things that are going on in the world and to think, what are we doing about people who are most vulnerable? What are we doing in in those places of injustice and pain? And quite frankly, our brothers and sisters in lots of other places of the world are paying a huge price for being involved in trying to bring an end to those things. While you and I in the safety and security of this country just sort of let it go. And I think the cross addresses that. It forces us to say, no, we we can't, maybe we can't bring an end to it, but we can be a voice. We can be a presence. We can care. And I don't, and not just somewhere else in the world, but things right around us. Things here in our county. Things here in the surrounding counties. And it's not as though we're doing nothing because we are doing things. But is it really getting into our hearts? Is our reflex reaction, that's wrong. I need to see what I can do to change that. It's the call of the cross. It's it's bearing witness to who God is. 
I think we also think about how we, we interact with people as well. In terms of walking, people with their, walking with people through their journey. You know, sometimes we are so, we get so wrapped up in getting people to the end that we want to push them when they're not ready to be pushed. But Dallas Willard says, you know, the kingdom grows not because we push people into the kingdom, but because we draw them to the love of Christ. And we want people to get to the place where they have relationship with Christ and they, and they experience the love of Christ. But we need to be patient with people through the journey of that. I like to think of it this way. I want to be patient with people in their journey as God is patient with me in my journey. And if your life is anything like mine, God is exceedingly patient. Because I give him all kinds of reasons to not be patient. But God doesn't shove us, he draws us. And that will also mean that instead of expecting people to come to us where we are, we meet people where they are. You know, we get involved in in people's lives. We become active with them. We we share life with them. And not because it's some it's some a strategy to bring them to Christ, but just because we love them. Because they're important to us. And we treat them the same whether they receive Christ or reject Christ. We just love them. And we love one another. I heard somewhere someone said we we are often are like we're rabbit hole Christians. You know, we, we pop out of our hole in the morning, we say our prayers, then we hold our breath while we spend the day out in the world. And then we run back to our home, we go to our Bible study, and we go home at night and we pray for the people that we've just been avoiding all day. There's probably some truth to that. And it's not hard to see People can tell whether we really care or they're a project. And when I read the Gospels, I don't ever see Jesus looking at people as if they're a project. They're just people he loves. People he cares about. And the cross calls us that same kind of mindset with people to be in their lives, to love them, to, to build relationship with them. And, and yes, to speak for Christ, but to live for Christ. And maybe one of the most profound things we can do in, as individuals and as a church is to ask forgiveness when that's appropriate. You know, we all know that asking forgiveness is one of the most difficult things for any of us to do. It's hard to say to people, I'm sorry. It's hard to admit to people, I blew it. Especially when we feel like, you know, we're trying to live, we're trying to live perfect lives. We're trying to live Christ for them and we blow it. 
And we have to go to them and say, I'm sorry. And our natural human response is to say, if I admit I was wrong, they're going to think less of me. Well, the truth is, they already know we did wrong. And the reason asking forgiveness is so powerful is because it's so seldom done. To have Christians go to someone and say, look, you know what, I blew it. I am so sorry for that. It can be a, a profound means of causing people to say, wow, I'm not sure I would have done that. And sometimes we as a church need to say we're sorry. I mean, some of you to here today may not, maybe still on a journey of whether, what you're going to do about Christ or Maybe you're a Christian, but you're really wrestling with the church and some stuff you've had to deal with. And and I want to say to you on behalf of the church, forgive us. Forgive us for a spirit of arrogance. Forgive us for speaking sometimes in a real condescending tone. Forgive us for being unwilling to admit that we are not perfect. Forgive us for giving the impression that we are perfect. Forgive us. Forgive us for for giving the impression that the church is more of a country club than a hospital. You know, sometimes we, we give the impression that the church is a country club. We're, we're a place that, you know, where there, there's classes. And that's what a country club is about. You know, you have people who are served and you have those who serve them. And the people who are served, they're welcome through the front door. And the people who serve them come in through the back door. The people who are part of the club or members of the club... You know, they get to use all the amenities of the club. And the club is designed in many ways. I mean, that's sort of what the reason for a club is not just we have people who are like-minded getting together. But part of it is we're like-minded and we're trying to keep out people who aren't like us. And so we set standards, whether they're monetary or, or uh, power standards or connections, so that we can keep this club the way we want it to be. And quite frankly, sometimes the church gives the impression that that's what we're about. That we are a club that um, we might or might not let you in. We'll have to see about that. You're going to have to prove some stuff to us. Forgive us for that. Because when I read the Gospels, I hear Jesus saying things like, the kingdom is for people who realize they're sick and they need help. The kingdom is a hospital. And in a hospital, it exists for one reason, to treat people who are sick. And everybody basically comes, and and we're all equal, We, we need help. 
And if we don't realize that, we walk in the door, they put a hospital gown on you, and that's the great equalizer for everybody, right? I mean, you know, and they probe, and they do everything they need to do to try to help you, and you lie in the bed, and you're sick. And the thing about the hospital is, everybody in the hospital is susceptible to illness. There's not a person in the hospital who is perfectly healthy. Yeah, some people have, have gotten better, and, and so they, they, they can help other people get healthy. But in a hospital, you've got people in an emergency room, you've got people in an operating room, you've got people in recovery rooms, and ICU, and regular rooms. And some people have been healed enough that they can help other people, but everyone is still susceptible to illness. And in one way or another, we are all in this thing together, and we owe everything to the great physician. And that's what the church ought to be. That's the mindset of the church. Not that we're in so we're better than you. But we're in because of Christ, because of the cross. And we'd love to have you be in too. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever the struggle, we want to help you know Christ who loves you and cares for you. It's about this this image of God that we are sending out to other people. What are we communicating? Years ago when the Promise Keepers movement was, was at its apex, there were... You know, men, the Promise Keepers movement was a, a gathering of men and meeting stadiums. And uh, the, people have mixed feelings about that, I guess. But, but by and large, it was just trying to help men be better followers of Christ, better husbands, fathers, friends. And, and I, there was a lot of good that came out of that movement. And at the height of that movement, they were meeting in huge stadiums and filling up 40, 50, 60,000 men coming together to worship and to learn, to grow. And I read about a group of guys in the Chicago area. They were seminary students out in the suburbs. And there was a Promise Keepers event at Soldier Field in downtown Chicago. And they decided they wanted to go. They were pretty excited about it. And they wanted to get really good seats. And so they decided instead of waiting for the train and the schedule of that, they would get a taxi. There were six of them. They split the cost and take a taxi down to Soldier Field. So they got in a taxi, and you know, they're excited. They're jabbering each other, and it was obvious that their driver, for him, English wasn't his first language. And so he probably said he probably was a bit overwhelmed by all the energy that these six guys had piling into his cab. But they took off, and as they got closer to the stadium, the traffic increased and continued to increase until they were pretty much at a standstill. They were maybe five, six blocks from the stadium. And they were batting around what to do because they really wanted to get a good seat. They wanted to get there early. And they were seeing the, the good seats evaporate in their minds. And so they, they got together and decided maybe what they ought to do is just pay the driver, hop out, and they could run the rest of the way. And they were just about to do that when one of the guys in the group said, wait a second. If we do that, 
We are leaving this, this taxi driver stuck here in traffic with no fare and virtually no possibility of getting a fare. And we've asked him to take us to the stadium, and that's going to cost more than if we get out now. And we are injuring, hurting his livelihood by hopping out to get better seats. I think we should stay. And they all looked at each other and went, I never thought of it like that. And they stayed. And they talked with the driver. They have no idea what kind of impact that may have had on him. But it was sending a message that we care more about the livelihood of a cab driver than about seats at a Christian event. I'm convinced that people view God through the lens of our lives, individually, corporately. What are they seeing? Heavenly Father, we are selfish so often. So often we're more concerned about ourselves than others. Forgive us. Let us hear the call of the cross to self-surrender and sacrifice and self-denial and love. And to understand the heart of your kingdom. And Father, even right now as we are thinking, as your spirit is at work in us, open our eyes to things in our own lives, in us corporately. And change us. Let us be known as people who make it easy for others to experience you. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing together. There is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us when the To rescue the lost You called the sheep without a shepherd To leave their distress For your streams of forgiveness And the shade of your rest And with compassion for the hurting You reach 
the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.